0: 2009, it was for me the best of times and the worst of times, buoyed by a faith that rallied the congregation that we had grown up as a part of. My wife and I launched out to be the first church planters from that big church that in retrospect was like a small town on the north side of Colorado Springs where everyone we knew in Colorado lived. We genuinely believed, and so without a second thought, having taken the year of 2008 to prepare and plan, scout out the land, lay the foundation, we quit our day jobs which really were our night jobs as well, and set out for Denver. And what happened afterward, my wife, full of faith, continued to build us up, and I unexpectedly encountered a time that stands out on the timeline of my history it was a time when i was afraid that's our title this morning nobody knew that it was a global economic recession we were facing not in january of 2009 we just knew we couldn't sell our houses and so i joined the 09 accidental landlord club anyone else an alum of that club ended up with a very strange rental property and the Black Forest north of Colorado Springs and renting a small house in the outer territories of the Denver region in Parker Uh, as far as we as close as we could afford to get while carrying the house in the Springs. Things didn't go like the storybook. I'm not sure what storybooks there are for church planners because no one seems to go that way. But I remember watching, fatefully during that time, the movie about uh, Howard Hughes and the spruce goose. Do you remember that? Leonardo DiCaprio, it's called The Aviator. And he was like slightly or maybe more than slightly crazy, but driven by this vision. And the way the movie and evidently the story of Howard Hughes' life culminate is that he was to take off for its test voyage, flying it himself on a runway with a cliff at the end, such that either the plane would fly or he would fall to his death. And I remember very melodramatically associating his experience with my own and thinking, Mari, we're barreling down a runway with a cliff at the end. It's not long enough. This thing's not supposed to fly. The economy's tanking and we're commuting from Colorado Springs. This can't work. And I remember the, the dad in me thinking about my little kids and how their feet kept getting bigger and they kept needing more and more expensive shoes and how they weren't gonna wanna show up to school in Parker as the new kid wearing Walmart shoes when all their friends were wearing Nikes and I was gonna be the schmo dad that they were gonna be talking about when they were in therapy at 40 and we were gonna be going to the food bank. And I was going to be selling shoes at night at Nordstrom's to put food on the table. And I had this whole plan of doom and demise laid out. And what I realized is this was a time if I just let myself be honest, which for the record, I did not. This was a time when I was afraid. I was afraid that the responsibility I was holding, I was gonna drop. I was afraid that the family that looked to me for support was gonna crash on the rocks. I was afraid that it was all going to come undone and that God was not going to come through. And I was full of faith right up until the point where I was not. Man, thank God for my wife in those months. I came from a church culture where to admit this, What I just said to you was about the same impact as standing up and saying that I struggle with infidelity. (gasps) He just said he's afraid. Like sucks the air out of the room. That's not allowed, is it? Especially in the faith tradition, the independent charismatic megachurch that I came out of. We're continuing this morning in our series called Summer in the Psalms, looking to read together through the book of Psalms over the course of the summer, wherever we find ourselves geographically and wherever we find ourselves in our interior, in our emotional life, believing that God meets us at the place we are and that His Word gives us an access point. And so this series is predicated on two of our church's nine values. The first, that we embrace the centrality of Scripture. There is no power in my words or the words of the most compelling speaker you hear. The power is in the Word of God, or it is not at all. The Word of God is sharp, it is alive, it is active, it accomplishes the purpose for which he sent it. And if we do nothing more than get together and somebody stands up and reads the word and we listen, then we have done well. And so we embrace the centrality of scripture. The second of those values is we engage whole life transformation. We recognize that Jesus is making all things new, not some things, not the spiritual things, not the important things. He's making all things newer. The gospel means nothing. And what that means for us in the kingdom of our interior, Jesus said, don't look for it out there, some place to go, some destination at which to arrive. It starts in here and radiates outward. And so whole life transformation. We've talked about how It's impossible to grow and mature spiritually while remaining emotionally immature. He grows our faculties, our image of God bearings across the board. And so we're looking at the Word of God and studying together, reading together, engaging together how to read the Bible for all it's worth, We have this reading plan that we passed out last week. There's lots more on the tables in the back and at DU Central. If you didn't get one on the way out, I encourage you to grab one. You can catch up. It just breaks up the Psalms into daily readings for nine weeks. Feel free also to do um, this at your pace. Like I'm a big fan of the one-year Bible. I like reading through Bible plans, but I like doing the one-year Bible in about a year and a half because otherwise my inner control freak and like uh, overachieving Gen X kid takes over. And I feel like I, I didn't do my religious homework and I'm behind and I have to catch up. And I don't end up reading the Bible for all it's worth. I end up reading it like I'm going to get a test at the end or something like that. So I did the year Bible in about a year and a half. I started it at the beginning of 2022. And now here at June, I'm kind of, I'm coming to the end. I'm right, you know, maybe 15, 20 days for finishing it, and that just leaves it life-giving. It allows for the reality that I read the Bible every day except the ones I don't, in which case I think I should, but it's there for me the next day. That's not to say slack or put Jesus second. It's to say Jesus meets us where we are, right? So grab the summer reading guide and read it at your pace. I hope you'll read with us over the course of nine weeks, but if you get behind, the Psalms will still be powerful and effective and sharper than a two-edged sword in August, So you'll be all right. And then um, secondly, we're looking at the scripture for how it teaches and how it models as much as anything, engaging God where we are. The subtitle for this series is engaging God from wherever you are, how Jesus made a name for himself, meeting us where we actually were and stood in sharp contrast to the religious leaders of his day who stood over people, meeting them where they felt like the people ought to be, and then wagging a religious finger at them all the while. Jesus met people where they're at, right? He didn't say to Zacchaeus, yeah, no, no, I'll come to your house like after you've gone through our 12-week discipleship course and like stop swearing and doing some of at least the outer sins that make you seem not religious. Once you know how to act the religious part, And it's just, you know, those petty interior things like cheating and lying and deceiving and and slandering people in your hearts. We'll leave those to work out over time. But once you get a little bit religious and look the part of us, then I'll come have dinner at your house. Jesus castigated the people who approached one another that way and met with them right where they were at and earned the right, right, to bring them along to where he saw God wanting to take them. The scriptures teach us how to come to God, how to bring our whole selves to him. This passage we read aloud because these psalms were read aloud and sung aloud and read responsively. They were engaged. They were lived. They weren't meant to be texts in a seminary textbook. They weren't primarily to be dissected for their theological nuance. Though what theology they propound we ought to take seriously. They were meant to engage people, to engage God right from where we were. So we read it aloud, and then we're going to break it up and look at it, and then we're going to read responsively at the end. By way of literary context, these psalms start, most of them, with text notes that actually are not added by the translator. Sometimes we see these text notes like of David, a mictam, or from the time he was in the cave running from Saul or whatever. And we think that's kind of the editorial notes similar to the way that the translators and editors of modern day scripture break, it up, break them up with chapters and verses and put little subheaders like rules for household living, you know, in Ephesians or whatever. But these, these are sacred. These text notes were written with the text inspired by the Holy Spirit and they give us very important literary context. For the director of music, a Psalm of David. What does the first tell us? This was made to be sung. He wrote it and he sent it to the musician to put, to put notes to it, to score it and then to have the people sing it. The director of music directed people in music. So it was to be given to them. They were to be directed, to engage, to enter God's presence through this, his word. And it was a Psalm of David. Why is that important? Every scripture was written by somebody. Yes, and most of them, save for the few that Paul signs and says, I, Paul write this with my own hand. Most of them, the authorship is left to be inferred or left anonymous completely. These Psalms right up front say, it's a Psalm of David or it's a Psalm of Asaph. What does that mean? That means this is David writing. We've said again and again, the first rule of hermeneutics, which is the study of the study of scripture, how you engage, if you want to say it this way, how you read the Bible for all it's worth. The first rule is before asking, what does it mean to me now? That's so postmodern. We ought to ask, what did it mean to them then? the people to whom it was originally given. Well, before this was given, even to the people of ancient Israel, it was given to David. What it meant was he was writing essentially a journal entry. This was his diary. He was pouring out his heart to God and then gave it to the director of music to teach the people, to give them permission to pour out their hearts to God, to model how to connect with God and to instruct, to reveal how God meets us at that place. This wasn't just a psalm. This was a psalm of David. This was about David's life. This was about when David was afraid. It's important in talking about fear briefly to differentiate the feeling of fear like a time when I was afraid, or as we just read, a time when David was afraid, from the sort of spiritual malady of fear. Do you know what I mean? Like fear that is the enemy of faith. And this is important because virtually all of the sermons I have ever heard on fear have to do with the spiritual malady of fear, or fearism, if you will. Like you live in fear you're afraid of your shadow. You're afraid of the worst things to come. Here's an example of that, and that's very real. Like my dad had a heart attack at 70. His mom had a heart attack at 70, and I entered adult life thinking slash fearing, living under the, the negative mindset presumption that I too would have a heart attack at 70. Living out of fear, that's the kind of spiritual malady that scripture says have nothing to do with because it, It's the opposite of faith. It's choosing to reject God and choosing not faith. That's why when we hear sermons about fear, it's almost always railing on fear and telling us we shouldn't be fearful. And that's true. We shouldn't live under the specter of fear. We shouldn't wear the garment of fear. We shouldn't participate in fearism, if you will. But what that's done to me, I wonder if this resonates with you, is in not differentiating that from the discrete experience, the emotion of fear in a moment, like when I felt afraid in 2009, or when you, if you're honest, Funny we talk about those things anywhere but in church, right? No problem telling our coworkers over the cooler that we're afraid of something, but in church no, I have no fear. I trust God. And so what we're in in blurring those two, what ends up happening? at least this is what has ended up happening for me over 20 years, is I feel like I can't bring my whole self, my true self, or my actual where I am now self to God. I have to be somewhere that I'm not for the sake of the company. Do you ever have company coming over? And so if you're like in a little thing with your spouse, you're like, hey, let's play nice. The company's coming. I have to play nice because I'm going to be with God's people. And it's created this false self-expectation. And so we're today, just for this message, the next nine will probably be about fearism, but we're going to talk about the feeling, the emotion, the discrete experience of fear, or when you felt afraid. Does this make sense? Does that distinction mean anything to you? Okay, I hope it is freeing. Here in this psalm, we're going to look at it a little differently. Rather than, as we traditionally do, putting the text with chapter and verse up there, we're just going to take a quote from this guy's writing, from this which the people recited and sang, and look at it. We're going to unpack Psalm 31 just a little bit. I am in distress, David wrote. My strength fails because of my affliction, and my bones grow weak. Because of all my enemies, I am the utter contempt of my neighbors, forgotten as though I were dead. Terror on every side. He's dramatic. They conspire against me and plot to take my life, although this wasn't a metaphor. Enemies were, in fact, plotting and conspiring against him, one of whom was his own son. How painful would that be? And they were surrounding him and trying to take his life. Now, can you imagine going to the church that perhaps you went to when this fear thing got convoluted? The church that I went to, if you didn't. Imagine showing up. How are you? Blessed. How are you, brother? Blessed. So blessed. How are you? Fabulous. Fantastic. Amazing. Everything's good. How are you? My bones are in utter agony. <laughs> huh? My strength fails because of my affliction. Whoa, that's heavy. My enemies conspire. I'm forgotten as though I were dead. Terror is on every side. They're conspiring against me and plotting to take my life. How are you? (laughs) What would we do if somebody brought his whole self like that? See, God, through his servant, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is showing us how to show up, how to bring our whole self to God. The reality is David models for us, he gives us permission in his writing that feeling afraid happens. And it's allowed to happen because we're humans. God made us, he knows how we are. We live in a world in which Jesus himself said, you will have trouble. And he didn't say, but you're gonna overcome it because you're an overcomer who overcomes stuff. He said, you're gonna have trouble but take heart because I've overcome the world. And that's like half comforting. <laughs> you know what I mean? But that, what that leaves is the possibility that in this world, I might have trouble and there might be a little bit of a time gap between when you overcame and when I overcome. And that might leave me feeling afraid that like the bottom's going to fall out. That's allowed to happen. You're not faithless and you're not defective. It's part of being human. The Psalms, validate our emotions. They validate that we are made in God's image, mind, will, and emotions. You're allowed to feel afraid. For too long, bad religion has mixed with pull yourself up by your bootstraps, Americana, and taught us to bury our feelings and overcome our fears and get ourselves together right? We've replaced the truth of God's word with apocryphal aphorisms like God helps those who help themselves. So get it together in private as quickly as possible, and then show up acting like the rest of us are acting, like we have it together. What's wrong with you? See, that's bad religion. And that's why too many people have walked away from church. Because man, living in the world is suffocating enough. When I got to come into church and keep up that air, it's just exhausting. Who am I allowed to present my whole self to? The man after God's heart here models something different, bringing his whole actual self to God. In Psalm 22, we see it again. He says, my enemies surround me like a herd of bulls. Like lions, they open their jaws against me, roaring and tearing into their prey. My heart is like wax melting within me. My strength has dried up like sun-baked clay. David makes no pretense when he is afraid about naming his fear and about bringing it to God, coming to God where and how he actually is. And this is part and parcel to his being called by God a man after his own heart. Too often we hear something like that and we make it mean what we want it to mean, like he killed Goliath. He was strong. He was brave. He accomplished. He achieved. He did stuff that I and the others who believed the American dream before me want to do. Therefore, he's a man after God's own heart. And we sort of make exceptions for these large chunks of his inner life that scripture gives us. And we're like, he was kind of a man of after God's own heart in spite of these moments of like, you know, weakness. These dirty off-camera moments that he should have just kind of kept to himself. Little TMI, David. David. You know, get your stuff together, man. I think the truth of of it is, and I've heard this over the course of more than 20 years of pastoral ministry and sitting with the saints of God and loving them and hearing their stories and their honest hearts cries. Many reject faith or hedge their bets on orienting life around God completely because their experience of religion inadequately accounts for their experience of living. And so religion becomes one more thing we have to keep up. And when we get to new year, new you, simplify and trim things that aren't working for us, what are you going to trim? passage continues in Psalm 31 a little later. Turn your ear to me. Come quickly to my rescue. Be my rock of refuge. A strong fortress to save me. Lead and guide me. Keep me free from the trap that is set for me. For you are my refuge. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. You know, in life, we're made to feel afraid at times, and in our fear, not to turn to ourselves, but to turn to the Lord. This is His desire. And the Psalms teach us this. They teach us to run to God when we're afraid, and then they give us a roadmap to do it. The Psalms teach us it's okay to be afraid. It's okay to feel what you feel. It's okay, in short, to be human. God wants to meet you where you are. The psalm teaches us, rather than putting up a religious front to try and fool the people of the church, which, by the way, normally we don't do, right? But so we tell ourselves, and culture reinforces, and then maybe to fool God and go hide until we can get ourselves together and then come back to God. The Psalms teach us another way, to be present to God fully where we are and then to run to him when we're afraid. And they show us how to do it. They give us examples of it. Too many of us learned to run from God when we're afraid and try to get ourselves okay, either by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps one more time, listening to inspiring self-help message shorts, or by self-medicating, usually by some combination of the two, right? We pull ourselves up the way we see everybody else seeming to do it. And then when we don't make the grade or when our hearts don't catch up to our bootstraps, we self-medicate. We drink, we look at porn, we escape, we do whatever it is you do to fill that gap, The Psalms teach us a yet more excellent way. They teach us to come, to run to God. It's okay to be afraid. Where are we gonna go with it? That's the question. To bring our whole selves to God, to bring our whole selves to the community of the saints, God's people, because you're allowed to, you're expected to. And then to run to God, believing that God's the one, the only one who can do something about that. This is, in short, the essence of the gospel. Blessed, Jesus said, are the poor. This wasn't just one of Jesus' hyperbolic sayings. Like, even the poor are blessed. He's saying, actually, it's better to be emotionally and spiritually destitute, to understand yourself to lack, to want, to need. Because yours is the kingdom of heaven. In this world, Jesus said again, you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. You're made inferior and you're made for me and I will make you superior. I will make you strong when you are weak, courageous when you are afraid. We're made to run to him. God's designed provision for feeling afraid is not bootstrap courage it's himself it's his love in 1st john scripture teaches we know and rely on the love god has for us god is love and there's no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear So the antidote, the solution to fear is not get strong, dig deep, really mean it. It's not self-inspired courage. The solution to fear is love. It's God's presence. It's God's essence, his perfect love that drives out fear. So when you feel afraid, the word of God teaches, models, enjoins run to God. This takes some reprogramming. Cry out to God in our fear. Lord, I I believe. Like that dad, help my unbelief. I believe, but I'm also afraid. I'm afraid to t- tell you I'm afraid because decades of bad religion have told me that that's not allowed. That's not the way it's supposed to work. God, I believe, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid the bottom is gonna fall out. I'm afraid I'm gonna get to the end of the runway and not have enough speed and this thing's not gonna take off and my family's gonna crash on the rocks and I'm gonna be put to shame and we're gonna need to come crawling back. We're gonna need to beg family for basic sustenance. I'm afraid. Bring your whole self to God, just as you are. Not only can He handle it, I've heard it said God can handle your big emotions. God made us big emotions. God desires that we come to Him. His perfect love will drive out your fear. And the Psalms, they show us how to do that. I love in His little book, Answering God, how Eugene Peterson said it this way. The Psalms, they're like spiritual technology. The Psalms are a portal, like a wormhole to God. We come to Him where we are in our fear or wherever we find ourselves, and He meets us there. And He solves our fear, not with courage, but with love. And His love makes us courageous and makes us confident, and makes us strong. And so read the Psalms, but not like an assignment or an exercise. The Scripture teaches, let the word of Christ in Colossians dwell in you richly. Interact with it. Let it rumble around in your heart. It says in Psalm 119, I I hide your word in my heart. So read them and... Mark them up. Listen to them and integrate them into your thinking. Ingest them, if you will. Remember them. Recite them and shout them aloud. This is the way the people of old interacted with God. These are what the Psalms were for. You know, um, as we study through the Word of God each summer in a in a word-forward way, just reading the word as the primary point and then understanding it through a theological rubric secondarily, I would encourage you to actually get a Bible that's made of paper. I I love the apps, and I use them, and they're convenient, um, but less natural to, to interact with, to mark up for most of us. And uh, if you have a Bible, you're like, oh yeah, I have the one that my my mom gave me when I graduated college. It's like got delicate calf's leather and your name's embossed in gold and it's super thin and each page is like translucent and you're afraid to write on it because you might rip it and your grandmother might roll over in her grave because you desecrated the word of God. Don't use that one. Put that in the shrine next to the picture of your grandmother. (laughs) Light a candle. Don't hold it too close to the calf skin or you might accidentally arson your house. And, and then get a good, cheap Bible, like one of those back there. Uh, Houston, is that you, Matt? I can't see. You. Oh, I'm sorry. Friend, would you do me a favor? Uh, would you grab one of those paper Bibles? And just like, see, they're right there in the basket. They cost like a buck 50. I mean, I'm not trying to be your like, yeah, thank you. <laughs> your Bible subsidy guy, you can buy your own. But if you're like, yeah, I just can't you know, I mean, my, my fourth streaming subscription just drained me this month, then let me buy your Bible, <laughs> lest you cancel Disney Plus. And, um, and then get a good ballpoint pen and a highlighter. That's what you need. That's your spiritual technology. And then as you read the psalm and something jumps out at you, you're like, I feel that, or I felt that last October. Highlight it. And then come back and write, like, don't worry about what you write. You're not writing psalms for anyone. The likelihood of your textual notes being inspired scripture, infinitesimally small. So just write what you feel and and make notes in there. And then go back and pray those things. Pray those verses. Engage God through them. Mark them up. Take them in. Meditate on them. Sometimes I w- would write them on sticky notes and like stick them at some place I look, like at the mirror. It's embarrassing to discover how often I look at myself or at my phone. Stick a sticky note there with a psalm that God spoke to you. Like, you are my hiding place. I'm feeling like I'm exposed and afraid. I'm gonna get shot down. Just write that thing. And every time you look in the mirror to do your hair, you see it and say it and speak it into your heart. This is how the Psalms, the spiritual technology God gave us are supposed to work. All right. So say, for example, you're feeling like you've been treated unjustly and you're afraid of the backlash if you speak up. Very real. Makes sense. Probably 5% of the room is feeling some variation of that right now or in the last calendar quarter. Psalm 25 says... Feel my pain and see my trouble. See how many enemies I have and how viciously they hate me. Protect me, God. Rescue my life from them. Do not let me be disgraced for in you I take refuge. What if all day long rattling around in your head, flowing out of your heart is rescue me, God. All day long in you I take refuge. Or maybe you're sick or you're hurting in your body or you're struggling with your mental health and you're afraid of how deep this rabbit hole might get and where this thing might go. Psalm 28 says, listen to my prayer for mercy as I cry out to you for help. Lord, have mercy. Lord, listen to my prayer for mercy. Lord, I cry out to you for help. It's a roadmap to come to God where you are Maybe you launched out on an entrepreneurial endeavor and you feel alone and at risk and you woke up and discovered that it's a global economic recession that's happening and you're overwhelmed with fear that your family is going to go hungry and you're crying out to God. Psalm 31, oh Lord, I've come to you for protection. Don't let me be disgraced. Save me for you do what is right. Turn your ear to listen to me. How many times I read this in those years until I could just say it without reading it. Be my rock of protection, a fortress where I will be safe. Rescue me, Lord, for you are a faithful God. I'm not saying memorize these things so that you can get a gold star on your Sunday school chart and at the end of the summer you get to pick a prize from the the prize chest. Although if you want a prize, and that'll get you to read the word, we'll get a prize chest. But I'm not saying do it out of duty. I'm say it, saying engage God through it so often that it becomes routine. It becomes rote like the 5,000 Seinfeld lines you can recite, right? So that it, what's in you is what comes out of you when you find yourself feeling afraid. We'll wrap it up here. In Psalm 31, toward the end, David writes, how abundant are the good things that you've stored up for those who fear you, those who take refuge in you. In the shelter of your presence, you hide them from all human intrigues. You keep them safe in your dwelling. In my alarm, I said, I am cut off from your sight, yet you've heard my cry for mercy when I called to you for help. Here, toward the end of David's Psalm, in sort of movement three, if you will, he turns his focus to reflecting on God's faithfulness in times past, his faithfulness to others, and then ultimately he starts to remember God's faithfulness to himself. And you see these three themes in many, most of the Psalms, validating where we are, teaching us not to run away from God and self-medicate and try to do it on our own, but to run to God, showing us how to do it, and then finally building us up in faith by installing God's truth in our hearts. The Psalms build us up by teaching us how to install God's truth in our our hearts. The truth that transcends our current situation. The truth that has been pervasively, ongoingly, and reliably true. The Psalms, they help us to remember And remembering helps us to believe. Jesus said to that dad who was afraid because his son kept throwing himself in the fire, he said, do not fear, only believe. You know, the irony of life in Christ is that more than any other times, it's the hard times when we grow in belief when we grow strong in faith. It's remembering when we're not seeing it. Oh yeah, God, you have been faithful in ages past. You have been a shelter for generations and you have been a refuge for me. There's a concept I read about the other day in developmental psychology called object permanence. Any psych majors know what I'm talking about? Okay, I don't totally know what I'm talking about, so no judging me, all right, Christy? Because I'm, I'm very much going armchair pop psychologist right now, but my understanding from an article is that in psychology today it's that object permanence is that point in development when a baby, and usually they say it happens around four or five months, when a baby comes to discover or recognize innately that objects are true, are there and continue to exist once they're out of sight, Right? Before that time, when a toy is taken away, they forget that it exists. After that, they remember it's imprinted, and they'll look for it. And that's one of the characteristics of human consciousness, and one of the ways I believe we're made in God's image, if you trace it through Scripture. Well, the Scriptures contribute to a sort of object permanence, and you might say that's what faith is like. It's remembering that even though I don't see it now and God feels a thousand miles away and I pray and the heavens are as brass for you religious sorts you know that use metaphors like that to describe your bad feelings, that's great. Um, Pastor Nikki Gumbel, whom I learn a lot from, he was the, the primary exponent of the alpha course He wrote, as we believe in the sun, even when it is not shining, we continue to believe in God's love even when we don't feel it. See, this is faith, and this is what the the Psalms install in us. They remind us, even when I don't feel it, I know it. Romans 10 tells us faith comes from hearing, from taking in the word of God. And so, in Psalm 28 you'll come across this week. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and he helps me. The Lord is the strength of his people, a fortress of salvation. This comes as a movement three in a psalm where he's saying, I'm not seeing you now. I'm feeling unshielded. I'm feeling very weak, but I'm remembering. The Lord is my strength. The Lord is a fortress. Psalm 33, no king is saved by the size of his army and no warrior escapes By his great strength, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. This is who God is. This is what God does. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And as we interact with God through the spiritual technology he's given us in the Psalms, it gets built up in us. We get reminded like object permanence to an infant after four months, such that when I do feel afraid, I don't have to stay afraid. Psalm 34, I sought the Lord and he answered me and he delivered me from all my fears. Psalm 32, you are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. This is who you are. And I know it full well. I have experienced enough that I can believe it Can build myself up on that truth, that transcendent reality. And I can stand there when I feel afraid. And so, the question that I want to leave with you this week is what do you do when you are afraid? I'm not talking about fearism, the spiritual malady of fear. I'm talking about when you feel afraid. Like, oh my gosh, I got a negative performance review for the second year in a row, I might get fired. Or there's layoffs coming. Or my partner is like talking with this other dude a lot. What's going on? When you feel afraid, what do you do? Each week in your little booklet, this is week two, it says write this week's sermon question here. And so that's the question. What do I do when I'm afraid? And then as we read through the Psalms this week, 25 to 39, you'll encounter many of those that I referenced. They'll seem familiar, maybe. And as you do that, make notes. God, where are you right now? Where am I? How do I run to you rather than running away from you? Will you deliver me from all my fear? It's time for us to go. Will you stand with me? I wanna take a minute as we respond to the Lord and worship and pray for one another. And I'd like to invite our, our staff some of our staff are already heading out to get ready for the park. So I'm gonna to need to tag in our, our elders as well, but also some of our group leaders. If you would, just come on up to the sides, to the front. It's a little quieter over there, a little more private. Some of you group leaders be willing to pray this morning. If you're feeling afraid, man, don't leave here alone. Don't leave here walking that road alone. Don't carry that by yourself. Cast your cares on the Lord because He cares for you. That's what the Word of God teaches. Would you come and just let us pray with you? That begins often just by sharing with somebody, hey, I'm feeling afraid. If you want to share the circumstances, we'd love to pray with you specifically. If you simply want to share that in general, we'll just pray that God in His perfect love would drive out that fear and would meet you there. In a minute, as we worship, I'm going to invite you to come and just let someone pray for you. But first, I want us to close where we open just by reading the Word of God together. We're going to do this responsively. These are, like I told you, written to be sung, written to be shouted, to be cheered, to be lamented, to be cried through, like ugly cry the Psalms sometimes. And they're written to be read in in a call and response way. And one of those that the meter and structure lends to that is Psalm 27, and it's all about God in the face of our fear. So we're going to read this together, old school Presbyterian style. So if you grew up like me in a church with robes and big organs and white steeples, then you'll feel right at home. And if you didn't, then you know what? Um, You're at Denver United. We're united across the spectrum of church tradition. And we view each one that Jesus is in as something we can learn from can season the soup. So let's just experience God together. Can we do that? So I'll read the line that says leader, and then you read the subsequent lines that says people. Leader, people, leader, people. Make sense? All right, but you got to read it out loud. No like broody, um, 21st century Denver. I don't like to read out loud because I don't want to be told what to do. All right, take it up with God or your therapist later. Just read it out loud so the person next to you doesn't feel awkward. You ready? All right. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is stronghold my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Oh, that was great. Come on, you guys sound like a good Presbyterian church. <laughs> All right, sorry, back to the word. <clears throat> when the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Okay, read this into your heart. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. All days on And seek him mm. Let's Come, Holy Spirit, infuse your word with life. Transform us. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of His sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. In my head will be above the who me. His sacred tent, I will sacrifice the of joy. I will sing and make the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek His face. Teach me your way, Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, spouting malicious accusations. on forward and let us pray for you. Don't carry this burden of fear alone. And let's just respond in the Lord as we close out together.